a lot of companies are finding that they're getting a lot more OSHA inspections because they're if they're following what the reporting requirements are, OSHA is going to follow up on an amputation, and that's when people are going to get the visits. From Rain Associates Studio, this is Unsuitable, a management and financial services podcast for entrepreneurs, tenured business leaders, and others who are ready to look beyond the suit and tie culture for meaningful, measurable results. I'm Doug Hauser. On this weekly podcast, thought leaders and business professionals break down complicated and mundane topics and give you the tips and insight you actually need to grow as a leader while helping your organization to grow and thrive. If you haven't already, Hit the subscribe button so you don't miss future episodes. And if you want access to even more information, show notes, and exclusive content, visit our website at www.raycpa.com slash podcast and sign up for updates. Finding solutions to reduce the risk of employee injuries can be difficult, especially with the minimal regulations for construction industries. Today, Travis Spagnolo, Certified Safety Specialist at SafeX, is here to share a few best practices and stories on how your workplace can prevent serious injury. Welcome to Unsuitable, Travis. Thanks for having me, Doug. It's great to have you on. Obviously, so much going on uh, in the the workplace this year with uh, obviously COVID and, and all the new requirements around that. We don't want to get so much into that, obviously, today, because I think people are, are sick of that. But it's talked out of COVID at this point. Yeah, yeah. certainly it, it has upended the the world of, of safety. So talk a little bit about what you do, though, in, in terms of visiting, you know, either manufacturers, construction job sites, et cetera, uh, what you guys do at SafeX. So at SafeX, we have, I, I always kind of say that we work in all three of the main sectors of the industry. So we work in manufacturing, we work in construction, and we also have people who work in both of those sectors, essentially doing industrial hygiene work. I'm not an industrial hygienist. Uh, I'm a safety, safety professional. So what I do as a safety specialist with SafeX is for the most part, I'm going into whether it's a manufacturing facility or a construction site. And I'll walk the job site or walk the, walk the facility. And I'm, depending on what they're really asking me to do, I'm essentially just looking for protect, you know, potential workplace hazards and things that can harm and injure employees, um, depending on what the client's asking for and things a lot of times are our inspections are very regulatory focused on looking for OSHA violations and, and things of that nature as well. So I was, before, you know, this morning and things, I was spending the day on construction sites. So walk jobs with superintendents and, you know, talk about what they're doing, what's coming up and things, how I can help them plan for doing things safely, safely and things of that nature. And and the thing I always think that's, that's cool about what you guys do too. I mean, I know a lot of people think of of safety as as an expense, right? But really, it's an investment if if you do it right, because it it makes you more efficient. Um, not not only that, but the morale and the pride in the in the workplace that people can take. I mean, talk a little bit about some of the you know the best best things that you've seen uh, along those lines. Well, I mean, when you when you look at and I'll just say this to what you were talking about from a financial standpoint, I, I always tell business owners. And when I, I go into businesses all the time and, um, you know, I talk to, you know, employers, I talk to the owners of the business, VPs, things like that. And there's a lot of people who have, you know, there's big differences and changes as far as what the cultures you see, you know, and see out there in the workplaces and things. And, and I, I'm typically, I've been with SafeX for five and a half years now. And in my opinion, it's, it's very 
easy for me at this point now doing this job for almost six years. I'm able to really tell quickly whether a company gets it or doesn't get it in terms of workplace safety. And, you know, I tell people, you know, whether it's after an incident that's happened, whether it's after they've had an OSHA citation or whether it's just, you know, something that we're trying to go in and get a potential job. um, I tell business owners all the time, you're going to pay for safety one of two ways. You're either going to pay for it on the front end or you're going to pay for it on the back end. And typically, when you have to pay for it on the back end because you've gotten the willful violation from OSHA or you've ever had a repeat violation or you have an employee that gets killed or you have a serious injury, that's going to cost a heck of a lot more money than to invest a couple thousand dollars in the training or to install the piece of equipment that you need to install for people to do it right. So you see all sorts of different things out there. I work with companies who really get it and they have really good cultures and and that's exciting for me. I enjoy going into those types of places, but not everybody we work with at SafeX is like that. You know, we work with people who they take offense if we you know, recommend best practices. They really only want us to talk about what they're violating, and that's it. You know, So you get totally different ends of the spectrum depending on the type of business you're working with. That's interesting. That it, yeah, I guess not surprising that you have all those different perspectives uh, that you see. And, and I guess that it's regardless of size, right? I mean, you work with companies all from you know, very small uh, to, to very large owner managed businesses and, and what you see out there, right? I mean, big facilities, yeah. small, everything in between. I mean, there, there's companies that we've worked with before that they've gotten cited for, you know, some pretty serious things and they have, you know, less than 10 people, you know, so they have some very serious, there's, there's very serious things that happen out, you know, when, where, where I'm from, I'm originally from Pennsylvania. A couple of years ago, there was a, um, there was a father and son that were working in a trench together and the trench collapse killed an 18 year old kid. Mm. You know, that was the guy, the guy who owned the business. That was his son. It was him and a couple other people. And, you know, his son got killed in a trench collapse. So <sighs> you see a lot of situations where the small companies in a lot of cases, because they either don't have the budgets to, to invest in safety, or they just simply don't know and they don't have the money to pay for a consulting company. They don't have the money to have a safety professional full-time on staff and things. And that's a lot of times the companies who have the serious injuries, but there's cases where you have, you know, companies that have a thousand employees, you know, working in multiple States and things like that. And they don't get it either. So it, it, it's across the board. It just, it just changes. It's, it, it's a really unique thing. And it's kind of what I think is really fun about my job is I get to really go in and identify those culture issues and try to find how to help a business and really find what makes them tick and things. Everybody has a different motivating factor as far as what the business is. A lot of companies want to make make something with the most quality. And there's a way, there's ways that you can adapt how you approach safety to that style of business. There's companies who they just don't want to get cited by OSHA. So what I'm doing has to kind of navigate towards that component of what they're looking at. There's companies who really want to just do things the right way. And those are the companies I really like working with. But for us, it's it's a big challenge for our consultants to try to figure out what motivates a company. Because if we don't find what motivates the company, then a lot of times we fail as a consultant. As a consultant. Yeah. It's interesting you, you say that as, as a safety professional, because us as a CPA firm at, at Ray, we're much the same way. you know. And, and sometimes where we have issues, it's it's where we don't communicate and don't go in up front with our team and understanding what the motivation or what what makes that that owner and that business tick you know what what do they really want from us you know yes we have this product that we can hand them at the end of the engagement 
whether it's, you know, cyber or a, a traditional audit or tax or whatever, but what do they really need that for? What are they looking for out of that? And it's, it sounds like it's very similar, you know, with, with, with you guys. Absolutely. Yeah. So, absolutely. So let's talk a little bit about updates to, to lockout, uh, tag out requirements and, and some of that and machine guarding for, for those that, that aren't familiar. Um, talk a little bit about what's going on there. So I would say within the last couple of years, there's been one of the big one of the big changes from an OSHA regulatory perspective is the changes they made to the record keeping requirements and the reporting requirements of injuries. So previously they classified an amputation as and I'll explain how this kind of all goes back to machine guarding and lockout and things. They previously would identify an amputation of a finger or something like that. Is if you look at your hand and you basically go to the first knuckle, if you cut your finger off above the first knuckle, it was not classified as an amputation. Now, if you cut your finger off, basically, if you just take any of the little bit of a any little bit of that meat off the front of your finger, it's classified as an amputation at this point. So that changed the record keeping and the reporting requirements, and you are required to report an amputation. And what happens is if you have an amputation at this point, you a lot of companies are finding that they're getting a lot more OSHA inspections because they're if they're following what the reporting requirements are, OSHA is going to follow up on an amputation, and that's when people are going to get the visits. And people are identifying a lot of the issues with lockout, tagout, a lot of machine guarding problems and things like that. And if you're looking at construction specifically, there really isn't a lockout, tagout standard for construction. In fact, really, the only thing that a construction company is required to do for lockout if they're working on a piece of equipment is they just simply have to put a tag on the circuit or put a tag on what the where the disconnect is at for that piece of equipment to not make to basically notify somebody to sit there and say hey you can't turn this on. You look at something from a manufacturing perspective, if I'm working in a facility somewhere and I'm a maintenance person, I would go in I would make sure I put my lock on the electrical disconnect. I put a lock on, I'd put a lock and a cover on any of the air valves, any water valves that are associated with that piece of equipment. So if I'm working on it, nobody can come in and turn it back on when I'm working on it. Um, from a guarding perspective, sounds like a good I, thing, right? <laughs> yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, I mean the thing, and the thing is, Doug, when I I go into facilities, that one of, that's probably one of the most common things I do at SafeX actually is is write lockout tagout procedures for companies. Primarily, that's done in manufacturing facilities. And one of the things that I, that I tell people all the time is whenever you have a piece of equipment that's shut off, there is somebody else in that facility that wants that to get turned back on, whether it's because it's something they need to use, whether it's something that's integral for production, whether they just have no idea why it's off and they're going to sit there and say, okay, I'm going to turn this thing right back on. If you're downstream of where the disconnect is at and they don't know that you're working there, I mean, your hands could be in the middle of a, you know, in the middle of a lathe or something like that. And they turn the thing on and you get caught in there and that's how people get killed. Yeah. Um, so unfortunately there's nothing that exists in the construction regulations that gives you any really specified requirements on what you're supposed to do. And that's where a lot of things happen in construction from a lockout perspective. That's interesting. So what so what are some of the things then that that you recommend sort of as as best practices if uh if you see that uh you know go visit a, a typical commercial job site for example. Actually it's funny you bring that up because the site I was at today I actually had this conversation with somebody. So they're building uh some residential apartments and you know, there's 100 units in the in the building they're putting in and they're right at the phase where 
the the unit meters in the electrical room on the first floor going in and they're in that phase where they're starting to get ready to energize the building put the permanent power in and things like that but what the electricians did was they ran a cable through all the individual unit meters that are in that first floor electrical room and they set one lock up to basically lock out all 100 of these of these individual units and if you're looking at things, if you were to compare that and what they are technically doing there is more than they technically should do, then it, more than they technically are required to do in construction. If you're looking at that from a manufacturing facility, it'd be a lot different. And this is kind of the conversation I had with the electricians. So what you should be doing is something that's called group lockout. If you're, are you familiar with group lockout, Doug? No, let's, uh, let's talk okay. about that a little bit. So group lockout would essentially be Let's say that I let you and me are working on something. Let's say we have two other people who are on the crew with us and we're locking out a piece of equipment. So we have one person that they go and they put the lock on every piece of on every isolation point, every disconnect that's associated with that piece of equipment. Then all the keys for those individual locks, go, they go into what we refer to as a group lockout can or a group lockout box. So we close that box or that can up, then every other person on the crew, we all take our individual locks and we throw the lock onto the group lockout can. So then what happens would be is if let's say that you leave the site and you have to go to another job or you, you're, you're taking the rest of the day off or something like that, you would then go, you take your own lock off and then you take it with you when you leave. But the theory then is that the, th the remaining three of us, we still have our own personal locks on there. So we've actually kept that machine locked out because the keys are still in that can. Let's say, for instance, on that construction site, the guy who was the foreman or whoever that put the lock on, you're supposed to take your own lock off when you're leaving. That's part of lockout tag out. So let's say he's done working for the day and there's people that are sticking around. Well, he might take his lock off, leave for the day, and there's an electrician working in a panel up in a unit on the third floor. Somebody goes in and they they energize it at that point, and that's how somebody gets electrocuted. Yeah, yeah, it's just having those different disconnects and and different safety measures in place, rather than you know it only being. In other words, it sounds to me like you're you're almost building a system of redundancy in in that that checks and balances, right? Rather than just having it at at one one place is that that's sort of the theory behind that basically part of part of lockout tag out is your number one you're de-energizing everything and then if you actually follow what a written lockout tag out procedure is part of it then is to make sure you're bleeding out the lines you're verifying that there's zero energy then you actually have to try to restart the machine so if i'm working on an air handling unit i would want to make sure everything was let out any, any any compressed air. I'd want to make sure I bleed out that compressed air. If there's any water in the air handler or something like that. I want to make sure I drain all that off. And then same thing. If I, if there's any electric to it, I'm going to shut the electricity off. And then at the end of that, I'm going to go and try to actually restart the machine after I've de-energized it. And then you can take your voltmeter check to make sure it's not you know there's still not electricity going to it. Things like that. Yeah, it's it's amazing. I'm sure I, I I've you know been on enough job sites in in my life to see you know I notice basic things obviously, um, but but you've certainly got uh, I'm sure a fine eye for detail. Like I always tell people, look, it's not that I'm that smart. I've just seen a lot of stuff over the years. So you you've obviously seen seen a lot of stuff. Can you talk about maybe some of the some other best practices just in terms of say overall culture and how do they get that to permeate through the entire uh, employee base and, and things like that? 
That's a great question. It's a broad question. It, it has to start from the top. And, and that sounds about as cliche as you can get, but it has to start from the top. There's a construction company I work with and they're local here in Columbus and they just do an outstanding job with everything that they do. And they have about 500 employees. So they're a fairly large company and their culture is just, it's incredible. They have no budget for safety, which is absolutely unheard of. And when I say they have no budget for safety, that doesn't mean they don't spend money. That means they don't cap the money that they spend on safety. And the owner of the business, he will buy any employee anything that they need to do a job safer. All they have to do is justify to him why they need it. And they have an entire safety staff of, they have, I think, at this point, they have eight full-time safety professionals on staff there. They have a safety director. And then I actually go in and I work for them about 30 to 40 hours a month doing additional safety work on the you know for them. Yeah. So they're one of my clients and they just do an outstanding job. And part of that culture is them having this ability to invest in safety. Every employee, when they start, they get their own harness. That's, you know, and if you're buying, they're buying top of the line, top of the line stuff. And some of those harnesses that you're getting from the good manufacturers and the top of the line brands and models and things, those are $300 a piece. And if somebody leaves after three months, they take that harness with them, you know, I mean, and they're willing to invest in that because they want their employees to stay there and they want their employees to take pride in what you were talking about, having pride in your work and things. That's what they want. And I've not seen another company be able to replicate it like that, but they, they, it starts from the top yeah. and, and it works down. That's awesome. Now, uh, from from manufacturing uh, perspective, obviously, you know, again, with, with COVID, we've seen a lot of different things. It didn't maybe impact construction quite as much, particularly uh, external job sites, things like that. Obviously, the all the PPE that you've got to be aware of. But what about in terms of manufacturing facilities? Have you seen more adaptation around that? And what are some of the the best practices that that you've witnessed over the most recent months on that side of things for coronavirus and the pandemic. Yeah. Or, or just in general too. I I think in terms of, you know, it's probably appropriate to talk about a little bit about that element of the work of the working, you know, working world at this point. And, you know, I think one of the companies that I work with, they're a fabricator. And one of the things that they did was they had all these workstations that were set up where their welders and fabricators were working and things. They, one of the things was they separated all of their their workstations Mm -hmm. So that actually helped them to, you know, apply that whole the physical and the social distancing component of it and things. Um, it, you know, some of those items are, are challenging in some of those environments because you really can't change the way you produce things. So a lot of the the norms that you know people are trying to employ as far as what we are doing in regards to the pandemic, you, you can't necessarily always approach them in that manner. Um, there's some things I, I will say that I've seen on construction related to coronavirus is there's one client that we work with at SafeX. They actually opened their job up to be like basically a 12 to 14 hour day. Hmm. So they, they've they had, uh, they're starting their project at five o'clock in the morning. So the crews that are working inside and things like that, whether they have temporary lighting in the building, 
they're starting, you know, first thing in the morning and they might be working, you know, till two o'clock in the afternoon. And they're just basically doing that. To, and they're, the job's ending at like nine, 10 o'clock at night. And they're doing that to try to space out mm. when people are working, try to eliminate the, the cross traffic and trades and crews and things like that working along each other for the same, at the same time. Yeah. Sort of, sort of the two shift model. I do. I've, yep. I know I have a couple of clients doing that and I think it's accelerated the use of technology too, right? I mean, we're yes. seeing a lot more, you know, tablets and other other things, the use of drones and, and other things to to help with that. Talk, Travis, uh, talk a little bit about what you see coming down the line, if anything. Obviously, we're in a, you know, we, we can only control what we can control. We can't worry about the, uh, you know, the the election and the government stuff like that. But what what do you see coming? Uh, perhaps what are the the how are the winds blowing with regard to additional OSHA requirements or things at the state level? Anything that you think folks should be aware of in, in the coming months uh, from that side of things? I don't. I don't think there's going to be anything in, in the near future. I'm not. I'm, I'll be totally honest with you because it takes a long time for OSHA regulations to get passed. They. I mean, when they. Probably the most recent big regulation that changed was the silica standard and that passed in 2017, and that. Probably, I'll be honest with I'll be honest with you. That one took about thirty years to pass. So you know they take a long time to change. I think what you're going to see is there's going to be different requirements from owners and general contractors to perform work at their facilities when it comes to the coronavirus. And and I know, I think probably after that there's going to be changes that are you know just full-time changes from that as well i think that you're going to have to have enough people to spread out your resources essentially i think that's going to be one thing whether it's you know having splitting up people on crews or however you look at it that's going to be one thing i had mentioned when we Met, met the last time I talked about, uh, I talked to some of your your people at the conference and I had said that there was a big thing to look at as, as far as like you're estimating people and things mm-hmm. like that in construction companies. There's going to be general contractors now that are going to be requiring very specific items for the sub, subcontractors and things to perform work on their site. So whether it's having the face covering requirement, whether it's having you know certain PPE to perform a job, anything like that, you now have to look at how do you install those into your bids. Right. So companies in construction especially are very, very, very tight with those numbers when they're putting the bids together because the bids, let's face it, are highly competitive. And if you're off by a few hundred dollars, you might lose a job. So I think a lot of times in the construction world, the first thing, and I hate to say it, the first thing that gets cut out of a bid is usually safety. And I think that's going to change moving forward to some degree in the construction world. Um, I think in manufacturing, I do think that the use of technology is going to be something that changes a little bit. I think that I, I don't. I'd love I'd love to sit there and say there's probably going to be no automation coming from this, but there's going to be some automation that probably comes from this when you look at it because I think that what or redesign of facilities to get people spaced out. There's just like I said at this point when you kind of snap the fingers, there's nothing. There's no way to just change the way that these products that have been made for years and years and years in a certain way. There's no way to just change those real quick with a snap of the finger. So right. there's going to be long-term changes that come from those. So those are some of the big things I would I would see. I think the technology thing in manufacturing, whether drones and things like it, I think we're seeing that we can employ some of those things and and use them effectively. Yeah, I think I think uh, it's in some ways a lot of this uh, these 
technological advances were, were coming. Uh, a lot of it was certainly in, in construction, a part of what was happening anyway, but it's, if nothing else, accelerated a lot of this. And people have to learn how to become more efficient with the, you know, the environment we have. And that's, I think, the, the ultimate lesson here is take these you know, safety guidelines and safety requirements and learn how to become efficient with with what you're doing with all of this right i mean that's absolutely yeah at the end of the day so well travis it's it's always a pleasure to to speak to you i mean you're such an expert in what you do and and uh love hearing the experiences that you have with uh with different companies uh, out there so we really appreciate that and uh look forward to having you on again uh sometime soon thank you very much doug it was it was a blast thanks Absolutely. And uh, again, if you want more business tips and insight or to hear previous episodes of Unsuitable, visit our podcast page at www.raycpa.com slash podcast. And while you're there, sign up for exclusive content and show notes. Thanks for listening to this week's show. Be sure to subscribe to Unsuitable on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you're listening to us right now, including YouTube. I'm Doug Hauser. Join us next week for another unsuitable interview from an industry professional. The views expressed on Unsuitable on Ray Radio are our own and do not necessarily reflect the views of Ray and Associates. The podcast is for informational and educational purposes only and is not intended to replace the professional advice you would receive elsewhere. Consult with a trusted advisor about your unique situation so they can expertly guide you to the best solution for your specific circumstance. 